All right, I want to invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. Last week, Pastor Justin wrapped up our sermon series we called Four Chair Discipling. And we talked, of course, throughout that series about uh, growing in Christ, what it means to move on to spiritual maturity, using those four chairs as an illustration of where we are when it comes to our spiritual maturity. And last week, as he wrapped it up, he talked about the barriers in between chairs and looked at John 15, how we need to abide in Christ in order to not get stuck in a chair, not allow a barrier to keep us from uh, growth in Christ. We have to abide. And so that idea of abiding ties directly into what we're going to look at this morning. We're starting a new series uh, called Walk Like Jesus. And in 1 John 2, 6, we see this idea that Pastor Justin left off with, with abiding and what it means to walk like Jesus. It says in 1 John 2, 6, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we see this idea of we're to emulate what Christ, how Christ lived, how he walked. Throughout our four-chair discipling series, we emphasize that idea of spiritual maturity, growing on to spiritual maturity. And as we think about spiritual maturity, really the idea is we're growing to be more like Christ. The four chairs were a great illustration to help us understand where we are in that spiritual maturity process and where God desires us to be. But our ultimate example is Jesus, right? If you want to be more spiritually mature, if you want to progress through those chairs of uh, being a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ, you're going to become more like him. You're going to be conformed into the image of Christ. And so that's why we're talking uh, these several weeks about walking like Jesus. What does it mean to walk like Jesus? Jesus. Jesus didn't just live a perfectly righteous life to die and give us that righteousness so that positionally we can be made righteous. That is, of course, an element of why Christ came, why he lived a perfect life. But sometimes we neglect the aspect that Jesus' life also patterns for us an example to be followed. That after we put our faith in Christ, we're positionally made righteous, but Practically speaking, we're going to grow in righteousness. We're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. We're going to be walking like Him. In fact, if you think about the title Christian, which was uh, in Antioch originally, the book of Acts was used as a derogatory term for those people that were little Christs. But that's a perfect picture, and that's why we probably use it to, to identify ourselves as Christians. Our desire should be to be little Christ. We're like Christ as we seek to grow in righteousness. In his book, Just Like Jesus, Max Lucado asks this question. I want you to ponder this question with me this morning. What if, for one day, Jesus were to become you? What if, for one day, Jesus were to become you? What if, for 24 hours, Jesus wakes up in your bed, walks in your shoes, lives in your house, assumes your schedule... Your boss becomes his boss. Your mother becomes his mother. Your pains become his pains. With one exception, nothing about your life changes. Your health doesn't change. Your circumstances don't change. Your schedule isn't altered. Your problems aren't solved. Only one change occurs. What if for one day and one night, Jesus lives your life with his heart? Your heart gets the day off and your life is led by the heart of Christ. His priorities govern your actions. His passions drive your decisions. His love directs your behavior. What would you be like? 
we would probably, probably all readily admit that our life would be dramatically different that day if Christ were, His heart was leading us, was guiding us, was living our life. Think about it. With Jesus' heart of forgiveness, compassion, purity, worship, and hope guiding our every action, that day we would struggle with that bitterness or that resentment that we've maybe carried towards another person. We wouldn't look the other way at someone who was in need. We wouldn't run to that sin that we've been running to. We wouldn't prioritize those lesser things in life. And we wouldn't find ourselves in that pit of despair and depression if Christ's heart was guiding our life that day. But here's the reality this morning. This isn't a hypothetical question. The truth is, once we've placed our faith in Christ, He lives within us. He gives us the power to be conformed into His image. And each day, as believers, we should be seeking to be conformed more into the image of Christ. And so therefore, our heart, our attitude, our mind, we could even say, should be conformed to the image of Christ each and every day as we seek to grow in Him. Our growth in the Christian life comes from daily dying to ourself and our own selfish desires and following the example of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We're to die daily to ourself and what we desire and seek to surrender to what Christ desires for us and be conformed into his image. And so we come to Philippians chapter 2 this morning and we see this perfect example of what it means to have a heart like Jesus. We see his heart through this passage. And so I invite you to turn to Philippians 2. We're going to read verses 3 through 11. And again, capture here the heart of Christ that we're called to have as believers. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this perfect example of Christ. And I pray as we study this passage today, God, you would speak to our heart, that you would conform our heart into the image of your Son, that we would have a heart of humility, a heart that wants to serve others, a heart of obedience, and God, ultimately a heart that seeks not our own glory, but your glory above all else. So God, challenge our hearts today. Help us to surrender uh, to the work of the Spirit in our lives, that we could become more like your Son and reach this world with the gospel. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So 
So three types of heart that we see of Jesus that I want us to look at this morning. The first one is this. We see in verse 6, a humble heart. We see Jesus in this passage producing a humble heart that we're called to have. If we step back a little bit from the, and, and try to observe the context of Philippians, what we find is that there seemed to be some strife in this church. There seemed to be some division. In chapter 4 of this epistle, we see specifically two ladies mentioned, Euodia and Syntyche, and Paul admonishes them to agree in the Lord. They had strived together side by side with him in the gospel, but it seems as though there's some kind of conflict. They're not getting along. Maybe there's a rivalry taking place there, but Paul says to agree in the Lord, to come together. And here in chapter 2, it's really an overarching statement to the whole church. As he begins uh, in verse 3, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Again, there's probably division. There's probably disunity in this church. Put that aside and instead in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look not just to your interests, but to the interests of others. And then he gives this ultimate example of humility, which is Jesus. Okay, their lack of unity was rooted in a lack of humility. And so Paul points them to Christ. He calls them to have this mind of humility. And he says, this is yours in Christ Jesus. If you have an ESV version, the version I'm using this morning, it's yours in Christ Jesus. Okay? The idea of this translation could be saying, because you're in Christ, because He lives within you, because you're filled with God's Spirit you can have this attitude of humility like him. And I think that's why the ESV translates it that way. That's a perfectly uh, good idea of, I think, what the text is communicating. But some other versions have a different translation, not which is yours in Christ. Instead, some other versions may say, which was also in Christ Jesus. So have humility, which was also in Jesus. He's the example. It's not so much saying that you can have that attitude because he lives within you as much as it is Look at his example. And I think that's probably more what the author intended as we see them, then him lay out this example of Christ, right? You're to have humility just like it was in Jesus, and here's what it looked like in his life, okay? So it's a call to follow the example, to walk like Christ when it comes to humility. We see here in verse 6 again, it says about this example of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Although Jesus is fully God, he did not cling to his divine rights and abilities, but rather humbled and emptied himself. John MacArthur explains it this way. He willingly suffered the worst possible humiliation rather than demand the honor, privilege, and glory that were rightly his. He had all the rights and privileges of God, which he could never lose, Yet he refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God, nor view it as a prized possession to be used for himself. So he doesn't cling to that, those divine rights. Instead, he humbles himself. He steps down. And you think about this humility as Jesus comes to earth, that he leaves the worship of angels in heaven and steps into sinful humanity, clothes himself in a human body, we see the hum humiliation, the humbling aspect of Jesus coming. He set aside aspects of his divinity in order to experience life as a human. MacArthur goes on to explain this. Jesus emptied himself 
of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes, though not the essence of his deity. He did not stop being omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, or immutable. He chose not to exercise the full limit of those attributes during his early life and ministry. So he doesn't cease to be God. There are many who teach today an error in this passage that Jesus completely ceased to be God. He was 100% man, and that's it. And so as we look to his example, it's only to look at him as the perfect man. Well, biblically, I don't think that's the case. He's 100% man, but he's 100% God. He's setting those attributes aside, not giving them up. Tozer, A.W. Tozer puts it this way. He veiled his deity, but he did not void his deity. So we see Jesus humbling himself, coming to earth as a human. Even the circumstances of his life were very humble. He didn't come to earth as a king or as an emperor. He comes and he's born as a baby in an animal stable put in a manger. His life was a life of humility as he was really... Uh, a person who lived in poverty, not, not many possessions. And so Jesus is this ultimate example to look to in what it means to be humble. We should seek to have a humble heart like Christ. And yet in our world today, we do not celebrate humility, do we? In fact, we just came out of a month that was branded Pride Month, right? Not only is it really pushing the, this idea of being proud, of being arrogant, but it's celebrating really rampant wickedness, things that God had called sin. And so we see our world's mindset is not to celebrate humility, but rather to celebrate pride, to celebrate getting to the top, using your abilities to exalt yourself. We cling as people to our perceived rights and grasp for divinity. What do I mean by that, grasping for divinity? Well, think about the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And what was the temptation that Satan gave to Adam and Eve? If you will eat of this fruit, you will be like God, right? You will know good from evil. And this is the same lie that many of us believe today. And this is the same desire that many of us have today, whether we realize it tonight. We want to be God. We want to be the God of our life. We want to call the shots. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And if anybody gets in our way, there's going to be conflict and there's going to be strife. An example that we could look to is the anger of Roe v. Wade being overturned. And you think about the heart that comes behind the anger of people that are longing to be the God of their life, right? I control what happens with my body, not taking into account this life that we believe begins at the moment of conception. No, I want to call the shots. I'm not going to let anybody get in the way of what I want to do if I have a career path It doesn't matter if there's another life. And there's many that hold to that pro-choice position that know there's life there in the womb and yet seek to be the God over even that life. And anytime we bring up this issue, of course, we have to make a, a footnote that this is not to say there's not mercy and there's grace for someone who's maybe had a past and made that decision. But I look to the example of the world who's pushing back hard against this uh legislation or or, uh, their desire to, again, make these decisions. And we see the anger. We see it's because of the pride of their life. It's because they're clinging. They're trying to grasp, just like Adam and Eve, to be the God of their life. 
So we're told over and over again by our society that we are the lords of our life. We get to call the shots, and if anyone gets in our way, then we can go to war with them. But we're not God, and yet we're grasping for that ability to be God. And yet Jesus, in this passage we see, is God, and yet humbly sets those things aside to humble himself, to come to earth, to save mankind. So whenever we're tempted to exalt ourselves in pride, may we look to the example of Jesus and pray to God to have a humble heart like him. But may we also pray, secondly, to have a servant's heart like Jesus. Look at verse 7. Not only did he humble himself, but verse 7 tells us that though, again going back to verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but verse 7, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we see here Jesus humbling himself and taking on the form of a servant. We see this aspect of Jesus serving others throughout his life and ministry. One of the greatest and probably the example that comes to your mind first about Jesus serving others comes from John chapter 13, where Jesus is there in the upper room with his disciples. It's the Last Supper, which we're going to celebrate here at the end of our service. And in that day and age, of course, people's feet would get disgusting, and there was a servant who typically in a household would wash the people's feet. It was the lowest position that could be imagined. And so as Jesus' disciples come to that upper room, as they're there, there's no one there to wash their feet. And what do they do? They start looking at one another, and we can imagine the thoughts going through their head, right? Who am I to do this, right? I'm better than John. John should be the one. He's the youngest. He should be getting down there and, and washing our feet. Or no, I'm better than this person. They should be serving me, right? And in the midst of this, in the midst of them probably thinking this, what does Jesus do? He steps in, he stoops down, he assumes the posture of a servant, and he washes the disciples' feet one by one. And as soon as he finishes it, he says, do you realize what I've done? If I'm your master and Lord, and you call me that, and rightfully so, and I've humbled myself, and I've washed your feet, then you ought to do the same as what Jesus says. You ought to serve others in that way. There should be no task to Uh, low for us as believers that we can't step in and serve in that way so we see this example of jesus being a servant as believers today we again have no excuse not to serve others if we have that thought of something's below us may we look to this example of christ and consider how he stepped down and served others and yet we're so consumed today with how others can serve us how they should be meeting our needs instead of, as Paul says at the beginning of this, uh, this epistle, he says, don't just look out for your own interests, right? Look out for the interests of others. We should be looking for the needs of those around us and seeking to serve them as we're able. We strive for greatness. We think that if we stoop down and serve others, sometimes that they will perceive us as weak. And really, when we think about that, the world's, in the world's eyes, serving is weakness, Stepping down and doing those menial tasks is seen as weak. And we're, we should be striving for greatness. We should be striving for fame and fortune and all these things. Yet, this is what Jesus says in Matthew twenty twenty five to 28. Jesus called them to him, this is his disciples, and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. 
it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. May we seek to have that servant's heart and truly be great in the Lord's eyes and not the world's eyes. So we should pray to have a heart like Jesus, a servant's heart. But lastly, we should strive and pray to have an obedient heart like Christ. Verse 8, I read just a minute ago, tells us that being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself, he came to serve, and as that passage we referenced at the end of uh, the last point in Matthew 20, he said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This humility, this servant's heart led to obedience, so he seeks to obey even to the point of death. We see really this idea of obedience to the Father's will throughout Jesus' life. In John 4, it says that Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. In John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. So throughout Jesus' earthly life and throughout His ministry, His desire was to be in obedience to the will of the Father. And this leads, this point of obedience leads to a climax of Jesus' ultimate obedience that Paul mentions here in Philippians, of being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We know that in his humanity, Jesus felt the burden, the agony of what was to await him at the cross. And in Luke 22, we see him praying before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it tells us that he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus felt the agony of what he would endure, yet he humbly obeyed the will of the Father in suffering on the cross. We're called to look to this example of Jesus' humble obedience. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to seek to have an obedient heart like Him. And yet, many times as believers, we can seek to look at obedience as something that's optional. Something that we can pick and choose. Well, we'll obey this, but not this. We'll obey those things that are easy, that don't require sacrifice. But if it's too tough of something to obey, well, we'll pass on that. But obedience isn't always easy. And we see this example of Christ that obedience many times means sacrifice. And so may we look to this example of Jesus obeying even when it came to enduring the cross. And may we pray to have an obedient heart like Christ. We can't wrap up our our message this morning without looking to how this passage ends in verses 9 through 11. So Jesus has humbled himself. He's taken on the form of a servant. He's been obedient to the point of death. But verse 9 through 11 tells us the result of his heart. Look at verse 9. After enduring the cross, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because Jesus humbled himself, because he served others and was obedient to the will of the Father, we see in these verses that God has highly exalted him. This seems to be suggesting not that just that Jesus was returned to that level of honor that he had prior to his incarnation, prior to coming to earth, but it seems as though there's an exalted honor that's bestowed on him because of his work of redemption. And so we see him being exalted. And one day we see in this passage at the culmination of history, every knee will bow before him and every tongue will confess that he is the rightful Lord of history to the glory of God the Father. And in this reality, I think we really discover the heart of these heart attitudes of Christ. We really want to have a humble heart like Jesus. We really want to have a servant's heart, an obedient heart. Ultimately, it comes from having a heart that's set upon the glory of God. That's ultimately what's at play here in Jesus' life. Why could he humble himself and serve others and die an excruciating death? Because he was not focused on his glory in that moment, but the glory of the Father. In fact, in John 17, he says, glorify your son that are glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Jesus had the glory of the Father and this idea of redemption at the heart of everything that he did. And so if we desire to have a humble heart, a servant's heart, an obedient heart like Christ, ultimately it comes from having a heart that's set not on our glory, but the glory of God. And not on our interests, but on the gospel going forth, redemption going forth. You see, this ties right back into how Paul began this section where he says in verse 3, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. So we see that idea of nothing, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit. Some translations translate it as strife. I think the King James, strife and vainglory. And I like that word vainglory. What is vainglory? It's when we seek glory... For ourselves, that's vain, that's fading, that vanishes. We think we're by chasing fame and fortune or pleasure or power, whatever it may be, we think, oh, I'm going to experience this level of glory, I'm going to be exalted. And we chase after it and we chase after it and it's empty, it's vain. So Paul says, don't chase after that vain glory, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but instead, as we see this conclusion of this passage, Seek the glory of God, right? Seek that moment in history where Jesus is exalted. Look to that point. Seek to go out and reach others with the gospel by having the heart of Christ. Grow in that likeness of Christ for His glory and for the furtherance of the gospel. So we seek to be exalted in the world's eyes, but we see Jesus seeking to not be exalted in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. And because of His heart for humanity he is exalted through his humble serving obedience and so the option is this for all of us today are we going to seek our own glory are we going to seek the glory of God are we going to seek that vain glory here and now that will one day pass away and fade are we going to seek the glory that we get to experience one day as Jesus is exalted as all of creation bows their knee to the rightful Lord of history and professes Him as such. 
I pray that our choice is to seek the glory of God and to develop that heart that comes from that like Jesus. And so if that is our desire, I want to leave us with 1 Peter 5, 4 through 6. Peter tells us, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. This is the call to us, to not seek our own glory, to not be lifted up and proud now because God opposes the proud, but rather to humble ourselves, to live for His glory. And as we live for His glory, as we humble ourselves, God gives us grace. And we see the beauty of one day, the fact that if we're in Christ and if we're seeking after Him, what happens? We receive the unfading crown of glory, right? He will exalt us. If we exalt ourselves now, then we'll find ourselves in this passage being humbled as our knee is forced to bow before the Lord of history. But if we will humble ourselves now, trust Christ by faith, seek to live for Him, be conformed to His image through the power at work in us, then at the proper time, God will exalt us.